You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, I have a really fantastic guest. I've been looking forward to having her on for quite some time. Uh, she's a scientist who studies Ufaga Pamilio, and she's done a tremendous amount of research in the fields of mate selection and, and genetics and population dynamics in wild Ufaga Pamilio. And you may remember her from the Netflix series Life in Color, which was hosted by David Attenborough. And uh, her name is Yusin Yang, and we're going to discuss wild Pamilio and some of the behaviors that she's seen in situ. But uh, of course, before that, uh, as always, thanks everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way, helps the show get out there to a wider audience. And I want to give a shout out to my newest patron on Patreon. I want to give a shout out to Casey for joining the $5 tier. And uh, if you guys are looking for a shout out at the beginning of an upcoming episode, a great way to do that and support the show is to consider becoming a patron on Patreon. If you follow the link in the link tree, that'll take you to everything you need to go. Uh, consider becoming a patron. I've also got some Amphibicast merch, t-shirts and whatnot, as you guys know. And uh, there's also a link to in situ Ecosystems. I am an affiliate of theirs. And if you make a purchase through following the link, you'll get a 10% discount off of an in situ vivarium uh, tank, which is really cool. They're, they're great. They're perfect for dart frogs. And a small commission of that comes back to me to help support the show at absolutely no cost to you. And you'll also find a link there to Panamanian frog conservation. Uh, recently, I, I ran a... Uh, well, I didn't ran, uh, run, rather. I uh, participated in a uh, fundraiser through Order Anura to raise some money for Panamanian frog conservation. And if you guys are still interested in this point, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if the contest is still ongoing or whatnot, but um, go check out that link. You can help support Adelopis Sedeki conservation. So, uh, yeah, other than that, like I said, follow the link tree. It'll take you to everywhere you need to go. Everything for the podcast is one link. So other than that, uh, let's get into tonight's guest. Yusin, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Hi. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Dan. Thanks for thanks for the invitation. I'm super excited to be here. Well, I'm super excited to have you. I uh, I came across your research. I was watching Life in Color, which was a Netflix series. I think it came out with about two nine, 2019 or so. And, uh, of course, anything featuring, you know, poison frogs, especially Pamilio, is an automatic draw for me. And um, I, I caught that. I, I caught the section on your research, and I, I thought to myself, I said, well, I, I have to get her on the show because some of the stuff that you were doing with uh, courtship behavior and mate selection was just so so interesting. But uh, before we get into your, your research with Ufaga Pamilio, why don't you tell us about yourself? What were some of your earliest experiences with amphibians like in the natural world, and what led you to where you are today? Yeah, of course. And um, so I would say that uh, my story is not kind of your typical grow up observing the nature and loving the nature and leads me to become a biologist or like, frog researcher. So I actually grew up in a city in Taiwan. So I would say my access to um, frogs or, or nature in general is comparatively limited. So I do get exposure when I visit my grandparents in countryside. Or my when I, my families go uh, hiking, and but I would say like when I first started learning about the natural world is mostly from uh, reading books and also watching documentaries. So I'm kind of <laughs> kind of on the nerdy side, and so that's actually what first drawn me to the natural world. So I'm particularly fascinated by evolutionary theories, and then I would say like my uh, kind of interest in the natural world and its link to these evolutionary theories actually started in college. So where I have friends 
that are interested in herping. And, and so I sometimes go out herping with them. And then like also uh, by associating with them, I kind of got involved into, um, I guess, ecology labs and then helping them do some experiments. So eventually I got the, these connection of, oh, so these actual real life animals and uh, things that I observed in a while is connected to what I've been reading on the books and are fascinated with. And then so I think that's kind of, the I would say the start of um, when I want to become a researcher to, um, to to study amphibians and their behaviors and their evolution for my career. And out of all the amphibians, why study Ufaga pamilia? Was there a certain dynamic or something specific about them that really wanted to make you study them as a, as a species? Yeah, of course. Um, so I would say from a research point of view, they're super fascinating. Um, in a way that they have really interesting life history and behaviors. So there's a lot of things you can study about them. So you can study uh, when you what you just talked about. I studied their sexual selection. So they have like mate choice. They have male male competition. The males have territories. They also have these very uh, fascinating parental behaviors. So the um, the males guard the eggs. The females transport the tackles. And uh, of course, as everybody knows, um, well at least the listeners on this podcast. The females feed eggs to the tackles, which I think is a super fascinating life history trait. And uh, of course, the amazing color diversity we have in them. So it's essentially every color you can imagine, there's a color that these Ufaga familial have. And so they're just really cool. And I think aside from these, I guess, little points that make them great study system, they're just really cool. And I want to know more about them. They're definitely remarkable, and out of all the species that I've consistently dedicated content to in, in throughout the series, you know, throughout the whole podcast, really, I, I don't know, you know what it is? I, I just, the more I learn about Familio, the, the more I want to learn. And there's, like you said, there, there's so much to them, their their courtship behaviors, their, their, the fact that they're obligate egg eaters, the, the coloration, there's so mm-hmm. much to them. And trying to unpack them as a species has just become... I mean, at least for me, at least for me, from the podcast, has become just this this whole big project. I mean, I almost I almost feel like some of I spend too much time on Pamilio, but they, there's so much to them. And I mean, as far as Pamilio go, they're known for, like you just said, incredible diversity in the wild. There's a, a myriad of different color morphs that exist. There's distinct populations, and my, my question has always been, why don't they interbreed? Why don't we have one, you know, type? locale or type color of Pamilio and like how does that work like because much of your research has focused on mate selection and how mating preferences seem to select for the same color like why is this and and how is this advantageous to the species as opposed to just hybridizing with whatever individual comes along yeah this is a great question and uh, I guess a super big question that I think a lot of the researchers are looking at uh, Pamilio right now are trying to answer and so I guess I'll start with mate selection. And then so one of the things kind of famous about the Ufaga Pamelios, I've done some work on that, and other researchers have also done work on that, is that they have all these different coloration. And it seems like for the most part, they uh, base their mate selection on color. And so, uh, so, so mostly if you offer a female a choice between a male that has the same color and a different color, most of the time she will prefer the male that has the same color. And so uh, you asked like why this is advantageous to the species. So potentially there are two, 
benefits of doing so. And so preferring the same color basically means that it prevents interbreeding between different polymorphs. And so it is beneficial in a way that it decreases the probability of them generating polymorphs that are kind of intermediate between the two. And um, this can prevent them from uh, generating this intermediate color, which can potentially be less efficient in deterring predators. So you need to remember that these colors, they are not only important for mate choice, but they are also aposematic colors. So warning coloration that prevents them from being eaten by predators. And so if you have these intermediate coloration, the predators might not know that it is the advertisement for toxicity. And so you want to prevent having these colors. And then this way, preference for the same color will actually benefit towards preventing the, these intermediate colors from being generated. And so another benefit is that these intermediate colors are also less attractive to females. So if you remember, if these different females, they have uh, preferences for their own color, and suddenly you have these intermediate color, and it's preferred by nobody. And so then these intermediate colors will uh, have, a, uh, have less fitness and have less offspring to kind of like uh, mutually reinforcing with each other to have these uh, preference for the same color. So that's the main selection side of things. But I think there's uh, also a, a lot of other factors that influence um, whether different color morphs made with each other. So for one thing, a lot of the, um, the Ophaga familial color morphs, um, at least the ones that I study, these different color morphs are currently on isolated islands. So there's an ocean between them. So that's like the automatic barriers between different color morphs that prevents them from mating with each other. And so, of course, like these connections between the islands are not always stable if, if we look at it evolutionary speaking. So going back uh, maybe a thousand, a few thousand years um, or, or millions of years, you'll find that these different islands being connected with each other and sometimes separate them from each other. And so that's another factor that will influence whether or not these different polymorphs even have the ability to, I guess, like be in contact with each other or mate with each other. Do you know if there's any genetic basis to like say like a dominant coloration because i mean i'm looking at many i just on my computer in front of me i have a whole list of the different locales and um i know mm -hmm. there's many people who are into familia who'll be able to identify probably all of them but um i'm looking at punta laurel which is a relatively not color it's it's kind of a green kind of a olive uh, you know spotted mm -hmm. frog it's not the most it's not the frog that you would think of when you would think of something with like eposomatic coloration are there right. are there variations? I mean, I don't know if, if you, you studied this or not, but if, or if you have any theories, like, is there like a, any genetic predisposition for certain brighter colors? Because some of the species are really more hushed than some of the other locations that have much more bright coloration. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. So I didn't do any uh, any direct work on this, but there are people studying them, and so I think the genetic basis of these familial coloration is uh, currently still a work in progress. There are a couple of papers that have um, started to disentangle these different things. So there are some things that we know. So first is that like, color is definitely inherited. So if you breed a red frog with a red frog, it has a red offspring. And a blue frog with a blue frog, you get a blue offspring. And then so some of the interesting things that people have found, like when you, uh, I guess, like, crossbreed different color morphs is that sometimes you get um, colors that are kind of intermediate between the two. Say like if you, for example, there's an example if you have a, a, a red frog, a red morph and a blue morph, 
uh, and you breed them together, they produce kind of an intermediate morph or kind of like a bronze um, or, or like purplish kind of uh, mosaic in their in patches of red and blue. But there is also um, an example of, um, say, there's a population on the north tip of Bastimentos. And so there's a population with red morphs and yellow morphs. And it seems like in that population, it's more sort of a more of a Mendelian inheritance. So the red is, uh, is most likely dominant over yellow. And uh, there, there's also one example that I like a lot. So there's a, uh, in, in, in what, when I was uh, previously in uh, Corey Richardson's lab, we've been breeding different color morphs together for experiments. And uh, there's a, uh, the, the frogs from Isapopa, which is a kind of a green uh, dorsal and yellow ventral with spots on the back. And then when we breed them with a red orange morph from the southern tip of uh, Bastimentos, uh, so it's a, it's a green one and an orange reddish one, but if you breed them together, you actually get these golden frogs that is kind of like golden from on from dorsal to ventral and with all, all these little spots so it's like the offspring actually have uh, a color that is not like either parent so there's actually a, a quite a lot of diversity also in terms of how their colors are inherited which i think it's a also a really cool fact that people like to study on um, ophagopinolias for it, it is interesting and i've seen um not with um Familio, I mean, on the hobby end of it, we, we kind of like to keep the familio, you know, the, the lines from the different locales as pure as right, possible right. in the hobby. But I've seen mm-hmm. it with Tinctorius. I've seen different hybrids, and I've actually seen footage of some, some I mean, I ha- not really hybrids because they're this, technically they're the same species, but yeah. uh, different locales that have interbred. And you're right, there's almost like this intermediate kind of transitional, um, you know, look to them. They're not, they're not as specific you know, specific as they would be if they were, um, you know, more genetically distinct. But, um, I mean, it, it, one of the parallels, I remember someone telling me about um, Dendrobates tinctorius azurius and how they don't interbreed mm-hmm. with, an, an, there's, a, there's another locale of, of, of uh, tinctorius in the same area, and they don't interbreed at all. I, I mean, as far oh, as, okay. yeah, as, I mean, as far as mate selection goes, do you, like, well, let's let's actually we'll, let's start off with why. So, I mean, wh- why study the mating behavior in Pamilio? and like, how did you decide where to set up shop? Like, did you pick? Did you uh, choose a certain location? Was there certain morphs you studied? Like, how how did you get the whole ball rolling with this? And what were some of the methods that you used as you went along? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So, I think when I gotten started, one of the questions, central question, like driving my research interest is how, um, I guess, how natural selection and sexual selection interact with each other. And for, for Ophaga Penelio, this is a, a really interesting question because, um, as I just said earlier, their color is both um, important in natural selection because they are warning coloration. Also, they are, they seem to be important in uh, sexual selection as well that uh, influence both mates toys and male-male competition. And then so when I first started, this is just a really interesting, um, interesting fact of the familia that stood out to me that got me interested, interesting to them. Um, and uh, so most of the studies when I started looking at them is on female toys. So how color 
can potentially influence female choice. And then I uh, kind of come in and then like got really interested in the other side of sexual selection, which is male-male competition. Because one of the things that I found really interesting about these frogs is that the males are territorial. And then like the doc um, I, I've seen documentaries of the male frogs fighting, like wrestling with each other and then rolling around with each other. And it was really cool. And like since this is a, such an important part of their life history, that makes me wonder whether color is also influencing these mammal competitions as well. And also because uh, reproductive success ultimately depends on both female choice and mammal competition, it got me interested in how these two different sites of sexual selection, which are both influenced by color, interact with each other. So that's kind of how I got started um, into thinking what I want to study about the familial. And as far as the dynamics, I mean, you, you've got, I mean, there's, there's two really distinct, as, as you said, really distinct um, phenomenon going on here, the, the female preference and the male-to-male competition. Can you walk us through both, like, and then, well, why don't we start off with female preference, to tell us what that is, then tell us what male-to-male competition is, and then maybe we'll kind of um, if you can maybe piece them together in terms of how they function as a whole. Can you, can you start us off with that? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, I guess I'll start on um, using familial as an example. Um, so so in, in, in these poison frogs, the uh, males are territorial. And then so the males, they defend territories from uh, other males. And then that territory is important to them because this is where they kind of set up shop and then call to attract females to come visit their territory. So they, they will kind of like find a perch and then uh, produce these advertisement calls. You can probably find them on, <laughs> in a quick search on the internet of what they sound like. I'm not going to bother imitating it because I'm not going to do a good job. Uh, so anyway, so they, so they call to attract females and then when the females come closer, the males will shift to a softer claw and sometimes they'll do these little finger touches on the females as kind of a tactile courtship. And then also lead the females around this territory to look for potential oviposition sites or sites they uh, want the females to lay eggs at. And so, so, so this is a really long kind of courtship interaction. So the females sometimes lose interest halfway through and leaves. But um, if the females are satisfied with the males, the pair will, uh, will, will uh, we'll, we'll kind of like do this. Um, uh, they don't have like a typical impressus, but they're kind of like back-to-back position. And then they will lay eggs and the males will fertilize the eggs. And then so I just like describe this really long um, process of how familial mating works just to kind of like draw your attention to there are a lot of things happening. So the first is that the males need to have a territory. And then to gain that territory, different males have to fight and on. Uh, defend their territory. So this is where male-male competition comes in. So if the male is stronger, they will be more likely to have a territory and defend those territories. And that obviously influences their reproductive success. And the female preference part comes in when the female is interacting uh, with the courting male. And so the female is judging the male by a variety of different things. So for example, the color that we just talked about, they might prefer one color over the other, it might, uh, the females might also judge, judge the male on his advertisement call. So whether the call is attractive in some way, and they might, that might attract them to come closer or just give up and go find that male. 
And then lastly, the quality of the territory is something that the females may also be judging. So he, uh, when the male is leading the female around, looking at different sites, the female may, be, uh, may also be uh, judging the male. So these are all part of mate work. And so, um, so, so, so you can see that there, the, the process of female choice and male competition is actually intertwined. And all of these factors have to be considered together to kind of de decide like how successful an individual is in terms of producing the next generation. And these are all consistent, like, I mean, basically all males and females kind of behave the same in, in this way, right? That's kind of what's directing the focus for certain traits, right? Like, so... Um, I mean, in your experience, like every female that sees this is not going to mate with like, I mean, well, let me break that up. You've never seen a female of one color um, gravitate towards a male of another color, have you? Uh, they, it depends. So I think for the most part, um, as a whole, I would say, so there's always exceptions in biology. So in, in, in any order so i would say like what we when we say that red more that red females prefer red males more what we're saying is in a population of of red frogs if we take like 10 females out and then ask them whether they like a red color or a blue color maybe eight out of the 10 females will uh, prefer red but there's also always exceptions and then so this kind of behavioral isolation or these preference are not absolute is what I'm talking about. I understand. Yeah, I'm just I'm mm -hmm. just trying to pick apart more and more how one island would would sexually select towards a color that's so dramatically different from from a neighboring island like um, you know like orange versus blue or or red versus blue or whatever. Um, and I mean just just to kind of uh, another follow up question on that. How often do you see courtship behavior? Like, I mean, is it almost like if if males and females come into contact, just coincidentally, they automatically default to courtship behavior, or like, what what's the wild cycle like uh, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of male male you know male fighting and female selection? Like, is there more of is there do you see it more at a certain time of year? Do you see it? I mean, is there just casual interactions where frogs will just completely ignore each other? Like, is it, what are the, some of the patterns that you've noticed with breeding? Right. So in the wild, most, uh, for the most part, um, there isn't a great deal of seasonality because it's found in Panama in the tropics. So a lot of it depends on, on there's, I mean, there's like subtle differences in a dry season and a wet season, but uh, it's not as different in um, in where I study, uh, which is focused on coral, it's an archipelago, so uh, it's it's near the ocean. So the dry and wet season is not that prominent, and so I would say they, they breed year round um, pretty regularly. And um, in terms of male and female dynamics, most of the time males are more eager to mate, and the females are uh, depending on where she is at at her reproductive cycle. She might be interested. She might not. So, for example, if she has already has tackles around that she needs to feed, she might not have extra energy to uh, start a new clutch. But for the males, because they invested relatively uh, little in each reproduction, so they, uh, they have the sperms and they take care of the eggs, but they don't take care of the tackles. So a lot of times we'll see a lot of males that are eager to mate, so they're like always calling, always trying to engage with the females. 
But a lot of times the females are not as interested. So they might just walk away when the males are bothering them. And so that, that's kind of a dynamic. So this is where kind of where the female choice comes from. So because the females are less interested in mating, so they can afford to be, be picky. And the male is pretty much, they, they still might have choice on which female they like to mate with, but in general, um, they will try to mate with every female that is interested. Okay. Yeah, I just, I have a lot of, you know, a lot of listeners breed Ufaga Pamilio, you know, privately, mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's, it, it has more challenges than certain species like Tinctorius or Phyllobates or, or the, the, you know, the mm-hmm. inf- infamous Epipedobates, which breed <laughs> like nonstop. So, uh, you know, one of the questions we often have is, you know, why would a female turn down a male? And um, I mean, from, from some of the guests I've had that keep them captive, uh, there's been certain certain situations where a pair just won't click. The female just won't be interested in the male at, at all for whatever reason. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of your research is also another interesting dynamic of that because it kind of helps us make some sense out of, uh, you know, why a, a particular male or female might not necessarily get along, um, you know, in a captive setting. Did, did you happen to notice if there was any more... Um, like, did anything escalate with, with larger population numbers? Meaning, um, like if there was a, a more, uh, you know, spread out or, um, blotchy kind of population on a certain area, did the mating, uh, um, did the mating behavior increase or decrease as opposed to one that where there was a higher density of, of, you know, frogs per, um, you know, per square meter or kilometer or whatever. Was that, do you notice anything mm-hmm. in that way? Yeah, we, we actually do. So we do have uh, a, a paper that um, we worked on, which we basically go to two different populations. So one is higher density, one is lower density. And we just go out and then identify a male and female that are interacting. And we, we observe uh, what they do. So whether we record whether the female eventually accepts the male and the pair mate, or eventually the female lost interest and walked away. And so... One of the things we found is that in the uh, the population with higher density, the females leave the male on a lot more frequently compared to the population with low density. And so, what we are thinking might uh, might be the explanation is that in the population with low density, if the female gives up the male that she's courting with and then go and find another male, she's going to have to travel a longer distance and then spending more energy. And then, so this is what we call um, search cost and make choice. So if these costs are higher, it basically means that the, the female is able to sample a lot less males. And then so she will be less picky when she is uh, engaging with a male. And so that is something that will also influence um, whether a female is super picky or if she is willing to accept, um, I guess, a, a wider range of males. I see. I see. Do you think that has any role in female preference for for color as well, or that's just kind of a an, an act of, uh, I guess, last resort if there's no other males around? Yeah, great question. So that's actually what we. So, so the the study I just told you, we also it was also done in on um, in a polymorphic population, so populations with two different colors. So uh, basically, it was a population with both um, a red morph and a blue morph. Actually, like uh, red morph and blue morph and everything in between, because it's like kind of like a, a mixture population when um, they are kind of the red and blue are breeding with each other and producing something good for them as well. 
And so it seems like in the high density populations, the females are paying more attention to color and picking the color that is more similar to their own. Whereas in the low density population, um, the, the females are less picky. So kind of like aligning with what I just talked about of like whether the female can afford to be picky or not. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I wanted you to just kind of describe one of the experiments that you used in the, um, in the documentary Life and Color, because I, I found that really interesting. You had, um, well, you, you, you can explain it to listeners, but I mean, you had kind of a, a little, little 3D plastic frogs that had been painted with different <laughs> colorations. Can you just, for anyone who didn't see it, can you kind of just describe the experiment and, and how the mechanics of it were all set up? Yeah, of course. Everyone loves that experiment because it involves robot frogs. <laughs> so, yeah, so, as it, uh, so if you haven't seen the documentary, essentially uh, we have these 3D printed model frogs that it, like, looks very similar to the live frogs, and we painted them different colors and att- attached them to uh, a servo control, which is uh, something that's like similar to what you use with a radio-controlled car, so we can kind of jiggle the frogs around. And we coupled that with call playbacks so uh, recorded calls. And so essentially we can have a robot frog that is simulating uh, intruding male. And we put that into a male's territory and then see how the territory of male responds. And so we do this because we're interested in how color is important to male uh, competition and territorial defense. And essentially we have um, these plastic frogs painted different colors and we take them to, uh, to, to the male territories that belong to uh, frogs of males of different color and then see whether the color of the, the plastic frog or the color of the territorial male influence how intense this territorial defense is. And so essentially, <laughs> we're, so when, we, when we take these robot frogs in uh, and start playing the calls, most of the times the territorial male will become pretty mad. So he'll come charging out and then calling back. And then sometimes when um, he is really aggressive, he will wrestle the robot frogs that we put out and trying to pin the robot frogs to the, to the ground. It's really, it's actually really interesting to watch. It's one of the experiments that I enjoy doing. I love the analogy that you use. I think it was what you described it like two gummy bears having a fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you haven't watched the video of two um, poison frogs fighting with each other, go ahead and watch it. So they're, they're, uh, they're fascinating. So I, I guess I can re- repeat the analogy here. I, I just said it so many times it becomes <laughs> a little embarrassing for me to say, but I describe them as like two different gunny, two gummy bears trying to pin each other down, but they don't have claws, they don't have teeth, so they're just like bumping into each other and rolling around. That's essentially what poison frog fights are like. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the I think the the, the color and you know the, the squish. It's it's just such a, a great analogy. I mean, I'm sure people. <laughs> I'm sure that's probably what people. Um, you know, they probably ask you about 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 the, the analogy all the time. Um, you know, one thing I was curious about after because the the video the clip was only a few minutes, but how long did these males attack the plastic frogs for before they eventually gave up? Did you have to like kind of shoo them away? Or, I mean, would you get a male that would come on and then just attack this thing and then just not leave? Mm, so uh, we do limit the time that we put out the models. So uh, the, the more detailed procedure is that we started experiments and then we timed 10 minutes. So we timed like how long it takes for the, male to eventually attack the model. So sometimes the male don't attack the model. Sometimes like, in the entire 10 minutes, he just like calls and jumps around. 
but did not attack the model. But sometimes the male attacks the models, and when the male attacks the model, then we give it another five minutes and then count it how many times these male attack the model. So that's another measure of how aggressive the males are. And then after that, we terminate an experiment because we can't, we can't spend a whole day on a single male. We need to collect data on different males. But I would say, like, in all our experiments, like, the male never gave up, it seems like. He just, like, keeps hitting the model, keeps trying to pin it down. And then get really frustrated, but I don't think I've had one male that actually like gave up and so they 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 are pretty aggressive and they are willing to invest a lot of energy in defending these territories. Yeah, that it's it's interesting because in the you know the the, the captive hobby, the many of us who keep familio and really darfrogs in general is certain species and even some locales can even be more so within certain species, but. Yeah, they definitely. can they can exhibit a tremendous amount of aggression. I mean, even like in in uh, Tinctoris, even among females and even female on male. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because yeah, familial you th- females. Yeah, sorry. No, no, no. Go I, ahead. I, I, go ahead. I, it's just the, it, I, we always the, the question is okay. Well, obviously, in, in a captive setting, the frog can't just run away and then disappear. You know, it's it's kind of trapped in this box. So those social dynamics are something that we pay attention to very, very closely. And it's interesting to hear about a wild frog just coming after a plastic frog and just going at it relentlessly nonstop. It really just shows about how aggressive they can be. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were saying about female familio? Yeah, so I was just saying, like, in, in captivity, like, in our colony, we do sometimes see females fighting as well. That's what <laughs> I get in, in familio. Yeah, they can be. They, they can be not, rough. Yeah, probably, yeah, probably yeah. not as aggressive as Victorious, but they they do have some female female aggression. Yeah, where do you where do you have this colony? This is at at a lab, or where do you where do you have it? Yeah, so uh, um, when I where I did my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay, okay. Well, how did you have mm-hmm. your colony set up? Uh, so yeah, it's a um because we kept a lot of camellio in there, so it's a pretty kind of. Uh, automatic efficient setup where we have an automatic misting system in over uh, a series of tanks that's just like on the shelf and then so they have like um misting systems and draining systems yeah <laughs> is that is that what you're asking yeah i'm just curious because i had um uh who was who was the other scientist i had on um I think it might have been matt dugas i think who studied matt dugas, yeah. yeah 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 he has he had a, a colony of Ufaga familia, like different locales and whatnot. We were, we were just kind of comparing notes about how he kept them. Um, so, of course, I'm always curious about when people keep them for, for, for yeah, research. I think the, yeah, the, the last setup is pretty similar to, to Matt's setup. Yeah, it's funny because we a lot of us go so crazy about creating uh, colorful vivariums and whatnot with, with you know, a lot of plants, a lot of tension. And, and I've even heard from people, you know, anecdotally that they'll they'll lay eggs in, in like discarded, you know, Pepsi cans and the, <laughs> in, in like fields and whatnot. So uh, there, I think they're a lot yeah. hard, they're a lot hardier than people make them out to be. But um, just mm-hmm. it, while we're on the topic of females, uh, this is, this is one of the, the things that really kind of drew my attention to Pamilio and kind of what made me rethink them as opposed to other, other dendrobatids is just so many of their behaviors are like avian behaviors with, with mate selection and deposition site selection and 
they just to me more and more they they behave very much like many species of birds and the 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 maternal care is really what set it home for me and did you have any like when did you see any like preferences i mean i know i just used the pepsi can which was probably going to shoot shoot this questioning down but <laughs> did you notice any preferences that the females had for egg de- deposition sites and did they prefer bromeliads or um you know like d- depressions in their leaf litter like did you notice any specific um uh, choices that they made with regard to that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I haven't actually looked into familial uh, per se, but I think it's an interesting question. And then I would, like, from the top of my head, from what I've seen in the, in the field, I would say different populations may have different um, different preferences. So, for example, like in, in one population, sometimes like I see females putting tackles in water bodies pretty close to the ground. So like in like the um, plant- banana plantations or just like discarded water bottles, like you said. But uh, in other populations, I will hear, I will like not see a lot of um, females near the ground. A lot of times they're kind of like high up in um, bromeliads that are in a tree. So like a lot, a lot higher. So I would say there are potential variations in different populations and that'll be really interesting to look at yeah that's it that's interesting I, I hear about like on i think like mainland costa rica like the the blue jeans locale which is like ubiquitous i mean they're, they're everywhere but i'm always curious about some of the the, the insular locales because i mean there's so many of them if um you know if some of them tend to gravitate more towards uh you know man-made sites i don't mean man-made like on purpose but you know, uh, garbage and stuff like that, as opposed to some species that might have a preference for more very you know specific niche, um, you know, mm-hmm. like like a bromeliad at a certain height or something like that. It's just just you know another one of those yeah. questions I have. Yeah, and mm-hmm. um, it'll be really interesting to see if they they can learn those as well, because like if one site has become on like got more say like artificial deposition sites over time do the population gradually learn to utilize those resources as well i think that would be really interesting to yeah yeah i'd be curious yeah. about that but i mean as far as the the just to not to beat the bird analogy to death but one of the other behaviors uh-huh. that you studied was maternal imprinting which I thought was was fascinating because it's it's I mean for me at least in my limited knowledge that's something that I associate with uh, you know with, with with birds can you tell us about well, tell us about what maternal imprinting is and how does it occur in Pamilio and what is the outcome? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I would say like in general, sexual imprinting or like maternal imprinting is, is one kind of sexual imprinting refers to the situation when the, the offspring remembers what the parent looks like. Um, and then later on, they use it as a template to determine what a suitable mate should look like or more broadly speaking, what the same species should look like. So um, one example is a series of um, experiments that Lorenz's, Conor uh, uh, Lorenz have done. So basically, if a baby goose hatched out, and the first thing that they saw is a human, then they will, uh, when they are goslings, they follow humans around. And when they're sexually mature, they will uh, socially interact with humans and also attempt to, uh, to, to court with humans. So essentially, they are um, imprinting on human as uh, what the same species look like. 
And then, so this is this is special imprinting. And then, so if this imprinting happens on a mom, we call it maternal imprinting. And when it, the imprinting happens on a dad, we call it paternal imprinting. And so these types of imprinting can have a more subtle influence on instead of recognizing what the same species should look like, it can just be influencing what um, these individuals prefer on. Um, what their mate preferences are like. So they may prefer the mates that look more like their, like their parents. And so this is, uh, this is something that we found in familial. So essentially like what we are interested in whether the sexual imprinting is something that is happening in familial because they do have these parental care which allows the offsprings to observe their parents. And so what we did is we have an experiment uh, uh, experiment where we um, do cross fostering so meaning that we have uh, different color parents say a red pair and a blue pair and then we swap the tackles between the two parents and let the parents raise those tackles until uh, until they grow up and then later we see what the offspring behaves like so whether these offspring um develop behaviors that are similar to their red parents biological parents or if they develop behaviors that are similar to their foster parents so this way we can know whether these behaviors are due to genetics or more likely due to these uh, this sexual imprinting. And so essentially like what we found is that these when a red tackle is being fostered by blue parents, they grew up to prefer blue. And then so that way we know that these preferences, color preferences that we've been talking about is likely not genetically based. It's actually something that they learned during um, during when they during their tackle stage. That's incredible. So I'm just I'm just trying to picture this here. So I mean like during the tadpole stage are they able to recognize color or anything at all? I mean is there is there anything could there be smell or is there anything other than like the visual aspect of it that might play into it? Mhm. Yeah, that's a great question. So our experiments like is uh, kind of like a first step in this like just figuring out whether this is something that is genetic or likely uh, based on experience during the tackle stage, and then so that's uh, it is that's a that's a, actually a really great question in what some follow up experiments would be. So is to distinct distinguish what kind of cue they're actually getting in those tackle stages. Does it depend on the eggs that the females are feeding to the tackles? Does it depend on the tackles watching on the females? Um, do the tackles actually have ability to detect basic color? Is chemical cues important? So these are all unanswered questions, which is uh, I think will be really exciting to kind of dig more into. Yeah, the reason I bring it up is I, I had some I don't I don't really don't want to the, the research someone had discussed research that was ongoing or in the in the future. I really don't want to um, I, I can't really say too much about it, but um, this particular person had implied that Ufaga pamilio might be able to you know for lack of a better word smell. Um, a certain pathogen or something like that, and then by that means avoid it. So I'm always curious. I mean, obviously, Pamilio, from the way we perceive them, is obviously very, very visual, but I'm always curious if there's any other underlying, um, you know, stimulation, something like that, that might cause them to act a certain way behaviorally. Um, It's just, I don't know, just, it's, again, they're they're so complicated. Yeah, definitely. I think that chemical cues is definitely possible. So there are uh, I think there are studies on other poison frogs. I, th- I think in Rentomayas, I forgot which species it is, but there are definitely communi- chemical communication happening between 
the parent and the offspring. And how did you go about, did you like, did you just swap the tadpoles from like a deposition? Like, how did you, how did you manage to do that without the parents like rejecting it or, or whatnot? Like how did the parents willingly accept uh, someone else's offspring and then continue to take care of them? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So there's actually a study before this that kind of like provides spaces of how we can do these cross-posting experiments. So essentially the parents does not recognize their, their offspring by um, the identity. So it's not by any cues produced by the tackles. They actually remembers the location of where they put their tackles. So meaning that if you swap out the tackles, the parents, if they still go back to the same location, they would just assume the tackles in there is their offspring. So they're actually using these environmental cues instead of the individual cues produced by the tackles. So that's how we were able to do this. That's fascinating. That's just, I mean, obviously, the, the first analogy I'm drawn to is uh, uh, cuckoo birds. Nah. You know, <laughs> now, now, I'm, now I'm curious if there's... Uh, it'd be interesting if that type of behavior happened in, in frogs where they go in and they kick out the eggs yeah. and tadpoles of one species. And I, uh, what are this? Nature <laughs> yeah, finds I don't think a there's way. Any, yeah, there's any documented cases of this, but it will be really cool I mean, like nothing is not nothing is impossible. So, who knows? Like maybe like sometimes down the line, people will find these kind of uh, like similar behaviors in in poison frogs. Who knows? With the way that they behave, it wouldn't surprise me. It just it just seems like something that's within the realm of possibility. I could I don't know. I I could totally picture that being a thing that you know the. What what would you what would you what would the scientific yeah, nerd be to I, call that when when a, like a with a cuckoo bird was that a parasitism like nest parasitism or. Yeah, and that's parasitism. That's wild. That's that's. Yeah, but, but I would imagine for the tackles it'll be a bit harder since like for the tackle to kind of get rid of another tackle will be difficult. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. that's one of the the I guess like off my top of my head if I'm thinking really wildly. Yeah, I mean this is getting all speculative <laughs> now, but I mean I guess, yeah. unless they, unless they <laughs> unless they ate more, they were able to outcompete them if they ate the you know the the eggs that were deposited yeah. faster who knows but it's i i wouldn't mm-hmm. put that outside the realm of possibility but um just to get back into real science and not not <laughs> not not uh, speculative <laughs> science what does all this mean cohesively for gene flow uh i mean are, are we seeing to your at least to your knowledge i mean do you see populations that are isolated becoming more and more genetically distinct is that the direction that you think this is going that these locales might ultimately become genetically distinct from well i mean they already are but like genetically distinct to the point where they become new species yeah that's a great and i guess like pretty complicated question um so i guess the simple story of um i guess like how we imagine these preferences could influence gene flow between different color morphs is that if females prefer their own color, the frogs of the same color will mate more with each other, and then hence different color morphs will mate less with each other, and they can maybe potentially become reproductively isolated and on their way to become different species. So that's kind of like an idealistic imagination of how female preference can lead to speciation. But from what we've discussed, we also know that it is a lot more complicated. So for one thing, there is also male-male competition, which we know is influenced by color. 
And these minimal competition will also influence like whether the female is able to choose on uh, the color that she prefers. And then so, so, so this is one complication. And the other is uh, depending how the behaviors are shaped, so whether they're genetic or like in the case of Ufaga familial, they're maternally imprinted, it also influences how like in evolutionary time frame, how these preferences can evolve. And so like all these different factors all interact with each other and uh, becomes pretty complicated. And so one of the things that we can do to kind of ease things out is do mathematical modeling. So that's kind of like a, a line of research that I've done as well. And so like taking into account these uh, colored bias in female choice, color bias in normal competition, and uh, sexual imprinting, and, so, and and put that into the model and see what 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 outcome we get. So essentially, um, I would say like these modeling they can give us some direction of what possible outcomes we can get from these different factors interacting with each other. But a lot of times, it is really hard to say definitely whether they are actually going into becoming new species or whether they are not. So because it depends on a lot of things that uh, that is happening in between uh, starting to diverge into different color morphs and then to uh, full reproductive isolation. So um, sorry, that's a really long answer, but the short answer is, is I don't know. And I don't think we would be able to know um, soon. So, but the what, what we're studying here is the beginning of this uh, potential like divergence that might become that that, that might be to species and by studying like what processes are ongoing in these like initial divergence we can understand more how the whole process of speciation happens so this is like kind of the the merit of why we're studying them even if we cannot get a definite answer of whether or not they are going to become different if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. And the, the reason I ask is because with with dendrobatids, there's obviously, you know, like we kind of we've kind of beat this to death, but there there's an almost innumerable variety of of, of color variations for any number of reasons. And mm-hmm. and in, I guess in in the classical sense, we are predisposed to think that because something is isolated on a particular island or an island chain, that it's, it's going to be distinct and it'll, um, I mean, I guess kind of like, like Darwin, I mean, Darwin's work started on the Mm -hmm. Galapagos, but the, the, the funny thing with dendrobatids is we get a tremendous amount of variation in populations that are on the mainland that really aren't separated Mm -hmm. by anything that, that uh, distinct and it's it's um, i'm trying to remember which episode i think it might have been the episode i discussed with um, nick zappa he he did a um uh a, a historical analysis of dendrobates uh tinctorius azurius in the um in the trade and and where different imports came from and whatnot i think it was in that episode we were talking about uh how some of these frogs were sourced and a lot of them were, were in the same area as other lo- other you know color morphs but they were in the same location yet they didn't seem to interbreed and whatnot so like mm-hmm. we kind of seem you know like just from just from you know basic high school science you think that okay well these things are isolated they're automatically going to diverge into different species and you know we, like you said we really don't know in fact that might not even be the case because a similar phenomenon happens on the mainland and of course there's things that are isolated but like look at ranitomea like imitator i mean th- that's that's a whole that's a whole other uh, <laughs> Rubik's cube to try and figure out there. But I, I I mean like the 
there's so many possibilities. And I mean, the, the more, mm-hmm. the, the more I, I find out, the less I, um, the less I realize we really, we really, I mean, we know a lot, but the less I realize we, we know and more, more we have to figure out. I mean, as far as like the, the, to me, it's like a puzzle. It's like a Rubik's cube, which I guess is maybe a good example or a bad example because we've got all these different colorations and yet trying to solve the puzzle into one cohesive thing where we can make sense out of it seems to be very, very elusive. What what research do you think is on the horizon that might shed more light on Pamelia or dendrobatids in general? Like, where would you like to see research go in the next five or ten years? Mm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, uh, I guess like one of the things that you kind of reminded me of when we are you're talking about like these other plagiarism species on the mainland is that there are also a lot of um, color modes of familiar on the mainland as well. They're just not uh, as easy to access as the ones on the island. So they, there are less studies about them. But it would be really cool to look at those populations, um, especially populations where two different color morphs don't have very obvious um, areas like the ocean on, on the island population and see whether the dynamics of they, them interacting with each other is similar or different in what ways compared to the island population. I think that that will be really cool. And so that is like one of the things that I think will be cool to look at. And of course, like people have been working on it, but I really look forward to when uh, the genetic basis of the color is, uh, is, is understood more because this will tell us a lot about how colors could evolve and also in interaction with sexual selection and natural selection how they would um, influence the behavior evolution in Camilo too. And um, I guess like more things that I briefly mentioned when we were talking about imprinting is like to figure out like what are actually like the mechanic, uh, the, um, I guess, toxin mechanisms of, um, of, of imprinting. So whether it's based on visual cues, based on chemical cues, based on their interaction, what does it depend on? Does it have a critical period? So these are all cool questions that I think and we can look into. And in addition to the tackle stage, what about when the tackles metamorphose into these little froglets? Like, do the experience of these little froglets influence their mate preferences, influence their um, aggressive behavior? And what about when they're sexually mature? Do their preference change over their lifetime? Does uh, the aggressive towards different color change over their lifetime? So these are all questions that 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 we don't know. And I think like, understanding these will kind of give us a more holistic understanding of how lifetime reproductive success work and then how the sexual selection and natural selection interaction actually, actually work. These are just like some random, random things I have off, off the top of my head. <laughs> I, I like I like the, the word holistic, and uh, I'll tell you why. I feel like, and again, this is just because I've, I've been down this rabbit hole for the past like two years now over like, <laughs> over like 100 episodes, but... I, I there you cannot wrap these things up in a little box and say all right this is what they are there's there's absolutely so much to them and trying to understand every single aspect of their little lives is just so complicated and it's something like something just so so you would think simple as a little red frog or a little red and blue frog <laughs> can be so incredibly complex and sophisticated that like I feel like my my biggest my biggest pet peeve with people is that um, 
amphibians in general, but especially frogs, are kind of lumped in as being these very primitive organisms, and there really isn't much to them, and no. they're all dying, <laughs> and no one understands why. And it's 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 not. They're extremely derived, and I mean, my my impression is, you know, people like to say, oh, you know, human beings are the most um, you know, evolved and derived and specialized. We're, we're the, the the most evolved organism. We're terrible. I mean, we can't we can't do anything. We we can ba- we can barely survive outside if the temperature is underneath sixty and we don't have you know adequate clothing on. But um, you know, frogs just seem to be so so sophisticated. And you know, your research has. I mean, the the, the maternal instinct thing. I'm I'm going to be thinking about this for forever. And I, I know I'm going to get listener questions about this too because it's um, it, it's just such a unique thing. I mean, the fact that you could swap out tadpoles from one clutch or, or spawn or whatever you want to call it from one deposition site to the other. And I mean, I've even I've even heard that females will. Uh, They'll prefer certain deposition sites over another for certain reasons. I mean, it's just it's 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 like trying to figure out human behavior. It's honestly to me, it's even more complicated than that. But it's 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 amazing. I, I can't wait to see where this goes in the future. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you. It just like comes down to adaptations to a particular environment. So like humans are not necessarily doing better than the other animals. Like in it, it just depends to. The adaptation. So, like talking about like which environment you are suited to. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we're kind of winding down to the end, but I, I, I had to ask the 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 Netflix series Life in Color. It was da- narrated by David Attenborough. I, I watched on on Netflix, and it was it, visually it was stunning and it was impressive. I mean, anything with obviously anything with with poison frogs or frogs in general is going to capture my attention, but. I'm curious as to how that experience helped you and, and your research. Like, what what was the the reception to being on? I mean, being in front of millions and millions of people. How, how did that affect you and your work? And um, you know, what 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 ways has that uh, helped you or, or or hindered you? Or like, what's what's that experience been like? Yeah. So I feel really fortunate to have had that experience. It was. It was really cool to to kind of be part of it. Like I unfortunately didn't get to meet Attenborough in person, which, uh, yeah, I would love to meet him in person if possible. But um, anyways, but but it's still really cool to to be part of that series to kind of like have a peek behind a curtain of and like know a little bit about how these like amazing documentaries are made. Because like for me, I watched these documentaries growing up, and it kind of uh. Like for a city kid, that's like kind of an introduction to the natural world for me. And so it is, for me, it's just, it's just kind of like a dream come true to be able to kind of be on the other side and see how that happens. And um, so I guess like one of the interesting things, uh, so basically like my involvement is uh, going down there and then like helping the shooting team with like some on um, uh recommending like some some things they could do with like shooting the animals like where we are more possible to find say like males fighting and whatnot and also like the interviews that you saw there but i feel like just i just like have to admire the shooting team a lot because we're looking at the natural behaviors on animals but with all the constraints on the lighting the timing also the limited time that they had it is really like a big project for them to 
to, to be able to like capture these little segments and being able to show that and present it in a way that 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 uh that attracts people's attention. So I would just say it's really amazing to to be able to see what that looks like. And I guess like for how that um how that documentary influenced my work, I would say like I do have a lot of people that watch that uh documentary, either like people in the field of biology research or outside of it, and then just like reach out to me saying like, hey, that's pretty cool. And and like I love what you're doing. And I think for me as a researcher, knowing that there are people out there that are generally interested in what I'm studying is is pretty awesome because a lot of times doing research is um, a lot of times like one little success over a lot of different failures and a lot of um, hard work. And you have people that that are saying that this is really cool and I uh, appreciate your work. It's something that I don't know, like that motivates my research. And so I think that would be the biggest kind of um, I guess the, the, the biggest things I'm think, thankful of being on, on the series. It was definitely a, a, a beautiful segment. How long did it take to, I mean, I think it was only maybe about four or five minutes total, but how mm-hmm. long did it, I mean, it must've taken a long time between, you know, shooting and um, getting the frogs to cooperate. How long did it take to shoot that whole scene? I mean, I imagine it must've taken you know, at the minimum half of a day or a day, right? Um, much more, much longer than that. So I, I'm actually down there for, I think, it was supposed to be three days, but because of transportation issues, it got shortened. But um, I was there for a short amount of time to like do the interview and also like uh, look at some some of the shooting. But I know the shooting team like are were there a lot longer. So they they were there before I got there, and they were there for a little while longer um, after I left. So. I don't actually know how long they spent there, but it is definitely a lot. Like I said, a lot of things are depending on on chances, like whether or not they are able to find certain animals in a position where it's like good for shooting, or whether if they're shooting a a, a certain behavior like courtship or males fighting, then they ne- need to wait until those things happen. And yeah. Did you just sort of like with your experiment? I know there was a male that came in. I mean, it, the way that the way that it's set, obviously, they have to put a timeline. It's going to be a certain, um, you know, it's going to be edited in a certain way that there's a flow to it. But how long did it take to capture those males uh, fighting on that little um, that little log with the servo and the plastic frog? How, how long did it take to get that to actually happen where they could record it? Oh, okay. Oh, that that is actually not as hard. So on. Um, because, like, as I said, these males are super territorial and they invest a lot of energy in in getting away, on uh, getting the intruder away. And the, the particular populations we are shooting it at is actually one of the populations that has the highest aggression. So getting that behavior going with the robot frog is actually comparatively easier to, um, say, having two frogs fight. Because um, getting two frogs together and have them both have the motivation to fight is a lot harder because like if you take one frog and put it into another male's territory then the the male that is not the territory owner will just run away and so the fights are a lot harder to get i see and you said this was this was a, a, a particularly aggressive was it which locale was it was it best dementos yeah it was best dementos okay and you, like from what you gather they were wait wait uh no 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 it's not best sorry it's i think it's on Solace. Okay, okay, okay. But like, your opinion, they were more, I mean, the whole the whole locale, you think, is more aggressive? or? 
No, sorry, it was Busta Mentos. My bad. Okay, okay. <laughs> it was a while ago. <laughs> but but I, I think both Busta Mentos and Solate are pretty aggressive. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that's like one of those other things that I, you know, I have conversations with people, you know, uh, there'll be questions about a certain locale's behavior being different from another. Some are more aggressive, some are more, um, you know, and, and obviously in a, in a captive context, it's hard to determine how accurate that is with, you know, outside of, of, you know, input from someone who'd studied the frogs in situ in the wild where their behavior is, as, I guess, as close to natural as possible. But you know, that, that's fascinating how they can be so, you know, the same species yet so, so dramatically different from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we like like we said earlier, like a lot of times we want to apply like a simple conclusion to say one species, but I mean like in the case of familial, we get all these diversity among different populations. And then so that's one level of diversity. And then like when we look into one population and between different individuals, the individuals behave differently as well. So that's another another layer of diversity. And I think like what attracts me to biology is all these different layers of diversity. We have like individual level population level and then like if you go above species like there's all these biodiversity that that you can see and that i think like one of the most fascinating thing about biology is these diversity yeah and and familios are particularly charismatic species they just seem to be uh, they they just seem to arouse people's curiosity really just i mean obviously first their color and then for me Mm-hmm. all those additional behaviors and um you, you know the, I, I've, I know i've said it before i said the the, the maternal imprinting thing is going to be uh, now that's, that's going to be my new obsession i'm going to try and <laughs> i'm going to read everything that you have and everything else i can find about that because that's um <laughs> that's really interesting i know i know a lot of, I'm, i know i'm going to get like messages from listeners about all this stuff so um, but it's been very, very enlightening. So, Yusin, we're, we're at the end, but I wanted to give you a chance to just mention any um, resources that you think people might want. If you have a website, if there are links to any papers, I'll try and include everything I can in the in the show notes. But um, is there anything particular you want to just share with the listeners if they want to find out more? Yeah, so I do have a research website with all my papers on it, and uh, I think I have the PDFs of those papers on it as well. So if you're interested in other works that I've done, you can go there. And um, yeah, I think in general, like if you're interested, you can just like find my email online and reach out to me. I'm always happy to answer questions about about frogs. Awesome. Well, Yusin, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk to us about this. The research is fascinating. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you get a chance, go check out Life in Color on Netflix. Um, I mean, this experiment is just, it, it's it's simple, but it's just so amazingly clear. Um, you know, you, you get to see wild Pamilio just duking it out over a plastic frog, and it, it really proves its point. So go check that out. And, uh, of course, check out, uh, check out Yusin's research. She's got quite a few papers that are definitely worth a read. And uh, yeah, if you're if you're a Pamilio fan, I hope this uh, episode enlightened you, uh, you know, a little bit more than usual. And uh, if you're interested in Pamilio, um, again, there, there's so much so much to be learned out there. So uh, you know, if you're on the fence and you're you're, you're interested in becoming involved in Pamilio or finding more out, uh, Usen's research is a great resource to start with. And um, yeah, you know, other than that, you know, your your captive observations, people I know out there who work in the field. I hope this was interesting because it definitely was for me. So. Well, uh, you know, on to moving to uh, newer things. We're going to have some cool stuff coming up in the future. Um, 
you know, I want to thank everybody for listening so far. And uh, I've got some good stuff coming up. So stay tuned. And uh, I've got a really something interesting coming up next week. So make sure you guys check that out. Other than that, catch up with you all again soon.